Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me again in the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. You know you're getting to the end of your Life of Christ series when you uh, are in the book of Acts. This uh, is the final episode in the Harmony of the Gospels. The ascension of Jesus Christ, following, of course, His resurrection, following 40 days of resurrection ministry. He did ascend to the Father. He was seated at the Father's right hand. We're going to begin today to take a look at what happened when he was seated. Why was he seated? What is the present ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ as the head of the church? And so uh, point four in this outline deals with the ascension of Je- uh, the session of Jesus Christ. And that's where we left off one week ago. And what I want to return to again this morning. Before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we're humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for truth. We thank You that You are the God of truth and that Your Spirit of truth indwells each one of us. Father, I pray that we would be humble as not one of us deserves to be here this morning, Father. It's a grace provision. It's a grace gift. You are faithful to teach us. You are faithful to mold us into the image of Christ. And we thank you for that. Father, we pray that we might have concentration, that we might not be a distraction to folks that are here that uh, are desiring to feast upon your truth. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. As far as the ascension is concerned, it We're dealing with the final episode whereby Jesus Christ departs from his bodily presence on planet Earth. Uh, Of course, it's the opposite of the uh, incarnation where he came and he humbled himself and he uh, laid aside his privileges. He stopped operating on the basis of omnipresence. Obviously, God the Son can never stop being omnipresent, but he no longer exercised the privileges of deity. He voluntarily chose to limit himself to a womb, to the, the form of a baby, to the growing process, to his entire walk of humanity, where he limited himself to the mono-present circumstances that, that you and I deal with in, in terms of our bodies. Where we are is where we are. And if we're here, then we're not anywhere else. And when we ha- want to go somewhere else, we have to travel from point A to point B and the process there. Well, the ascension is the finality of Jesus Christ in his monopresent existence on planet earth we call the first advent incarnation and so we went through the gospel of Luke narrative that's Luke 24 50-53 <coughs> we saw the details there <clears throat> under point 2 we looked at Luke's uh, second narrative that is found right here in Acts chapter 1 And uh, you'll notice in verse 6, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Remember, they're wrapped up about the kingdom. They always have been. They have been from day one when uh, they were listening to John the Baptist say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They've been wrapped up on the kingdom ever since Jesus was baptized and they kept following him and he was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When it reached the point where the kingdom of heaven was no longer at hand, (laughs) when Israel rejected their Messiah, he started to prepare his disciples for the cross and they didn't want to hear it. They were resistant from that point forward. He kept telling them, the son of man will be betrayed. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again on the third day. They did not want to hear it. And Peter would say, Far be it from thee, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. They did not want, I think they're so attached to the coming kingdom, so attached to the glory, so attached to throwing off Rome and doing all these things. Even to the point where he was hanging on the cross, they still didn't believe it. (coughs) All right, so here they are now, after the cross, after the resurrection. And you can almost hear the relief in their voice saying, okay, Lord, (laughs) boy, you put us through it. All right, all right, Lord. All right, we didn't like it, but glad that's over with. All right, all right, Lord. Got that death thing done, and you got that resurrection thing done. 
You really put us through it. So now, is it at this time? Can we finally have the kingdom? (laughs) Right? Right there in verse 6. Lord, after all you've put us through, can we have the kingdom now? Still, it's a selfish view. Is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. The issue on witnesses. This is what we looked at in terms of the great cognition. And I'm not going to go back and review all that, but I made a difference between the great commission of Matthew 28 and the great cognition of Luke 24. And if you've not been in the study, I would encourage you to go back, or even if you have been in the study, go back and listen to those again. Listen to them again. Remind yourself that the great commission is go and make disciples. The great cognition, where he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. You know what cognizance is? Are you cognizant of the term cognition? Okay. And I don't usually use the word cognition, but it rhymed with commission, so I used it. The great commission in Matthew 28 is go and make disciples. The great cognition is Luke 24, where he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he opened their minds to understand all of the first advent and second advent prophecies for Israel. For Israel. And when he said, you will be my witnesses, that's witnesses for Israel. That's not the Great Commission. And, and, and please, please, uh, if, if, if we're the only believers in the United States that understand this, I want you to understand this. The Great Commission is not you are my witnesses. That's the problem. The bad doctrine where people think the Great Commission is being a witness. The Great Commission is not being a witness. The Great Commission is making disciples. Nowhere in Matthew 28 do you have witness or be a witness or you are my witness or anything. Nowhere in Matthew 28 do you have evangelism. You have make disciples. Okay? And likewise in, Matthew, in Luke 24, nowhere in Luke 24 does it say make disciples. Nowhere in Luke 24, see, it says you will be my witnesses. And that repentance must be preached. Okay, that's not great commission. That's not evangelism. Repentance is the preparation for the kingdom, for which indeed you are my witnesses. So, the great cognition from Luke is restated in Acts. And what you have here is a parallel in Acts 1, 6 through 8, that you have to view in parallel with Luke 24, verses 44 through 49. The fact that the witnesses of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ is significant for the coming kingdom. Likewise, the ascension is restated in Acts, verses 9 through 11. So after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. There it is, the ascension. He ascended. He was lifted up. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. You know, you can stand here all you want, staring up into the sky all you want. But it's going to be more than 2,000 years before he comes back. Okay? Now, they don't know that. The only reason we know that is not because the Bible says so, because we've seen the church age endure for more than 2,000 years now. All right? Or close to 2,000 years now, from 33 AD to, uh, what year is this? All right, thanks. <laughs> you can check my watch. What year is this? Not quite 2,000 years, okay, from 33 AD to now, to 2014. I know what year it is. All right. So, parallel verses 9 through 11, back to Luke 24, and you got verses 50 through 53. And I think if you have both of these chapters together, Luke 24 is how he concluded his gospel. Acts chapter 1 is how he introduces his post-gospel, his history of the uh, of the apostles. Remember, Luke and Acts are part one and part two by the same author. I think we should rename them first and second Theophilus. Okay, the first letter of Luke to Theophilus, the second letter of Luke to Theophilus, and uh, there we have it. He was lifted up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Two angels identify the ascension with the second coming. The Mount of Olives is where he's coming back. All right. Is where he's coming back. I'm not talking about rapture when he catches up to be with him in the clouds. I'm talking about when he lands on the earth. 
he will land on the very same mountain that he launched from. All right? And Zechariah 14 tells us that. There are other passages related to the ascension we looked at last week. That was point three. You know, it says in John 6.62 that the time of his ascension was drawing near. Not the time of the cross was drawing near, the time of his ascension was drawing near. So he fixed his eyes to go to Jerusalem. He didn't fix his eyes on the crucifixion. He fixed his eyes on the ascension, we're told. And then, of course, in John 20, I think, is our biggest clue that there was more than one ascension, that he ascended at least twice, probably three or four different times in between uh, Easter Sunday and the final ascension 40 days later. By the way, if this is 10 days before Pentecost, we're looking at basically May 14th. All right, if Pentecost was May 24th, some people peg it at May 25th, I think, of uh, 33 AD. Um, May 24th or 25th, either way. <clears throat> and I think um, this would then be 10 days prior to that, May 14th, all right? 40 days after April 5th. All right, which gets us now to, oh yes, the mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3. Let's look at that, 1 Timothy 3, and then we'll move on to point 4. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul incorporated this. He said, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. And it's interesting, this hymn, or this psalm, if you will, not in the book of Psalms, but it is a psalm, um, is mystery doctrine. It is related to church age information. It is, uh, it is possibly one of the earliest hymns written in the church age. And, and Paul incorporates it here. We don't know that he actually wrote it, maybe Maybe he was the author of it. Maybe he just simply included it. Somebody else wrote it. But it is musterion, the Greek term that references the doctrine that's not revealed in the Old Testament, unfolded for us now in the age of grace. He who was revealed in the flesh. All right, revealed in the flesh. Think about what it took for first advent incarnation, that he had to be born of a virgin, that he had to walk this walk, our earthly walk, in the flesh. Those who deny that Jesus came in the flesh are what? First John tells us, Antichrist. Okay. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated either in the Spirit or by the Spirit. So we've got a contrast with flesh versus Spirit. Vindicated by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended as a dove, landed upon him. The Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Seen by angels both the elect angels that ministered to him and the fallen angels that tempted him and afflicted him, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Taken up in glory. This is, uh, this is a hymn. This is a song. This is the life of Christ. That's why studying the life of Christ, I think, is, is valuable for believers today. The whole first advent experience, from virgin birth to ascension, right? Revealed in the flesh, Take it up in spirit. There's your bookends of this psalm. The climax, though, is the ascension. Taken up in glory. The fact that he wasn't just raised, okay, I'm alive again, taken up in glory. You and I are going to be raised, and we're going to be taken up in glory. He was seated at the Father's right hand. We're seated at the Father's right hand. In any event, the common confession mystery. This is what we... All can testify to. Every born-again believer can testify to a risen Savior. And we can appreciate that. All right. Which gets us now to main point four. The ascension of Jesus Christ was followed by the present session of Jesus Christ. Session. What do we mean by session? We mean that he's seated. He is in session. When a judge takes his seat, we say the court is in session. Jesus Christ has taken his seat Jesus Christ, this is called the session of Jesus Christ. It's his present ministry as the head of the church. All right. Now, for this, we have to start with Psalms. <coughs> Psalm 110. Join me there. Why is it important that we have not only a risen Savior, but a seated Savior? And it's kind of unfortunate. Much of our hymnology 
You know, we got hymns that say, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today, right? I know that He is living, whatever men may say. We have songs about the risen Savior. What about the ascended and seated Savior? Seated at the Father's right hand. Our advocate, our intercessor, our, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Here's Psalm 110. It's the Psalm of David. The Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord. Yahweh says to my Adonai. Yahweh, Jehovah, says to my Adonai. And Jesus uses this passage, in fact, in part of his um, confrontations with the uh, Pharisees. He uses this passage in part of his confrontation to demonstrate how David can call him Lord. Why does David call him my Adonai, my Lord? And this was leaving them stumped, right? Because uh, they didn't like the title son of uh, man. They didn't like the title son of God. They, um, they couldn't deny that Jesus of Nazareth was Davidic, that he was son of David, and he was in the legal line from David through Solomon all the way down to his father Joseph. There was the legal line that, that they could not deny. They could not, could not deny. But his preexistence, his deity, his status as God the Son. He says, why does David call him Lord? If he's a descendant of David, if he's the son of David, why does he call him Lord? See, and they had no answer for it. They, well, they had an answer, they just didn't want to say it out loud. <laughs> okay, that's the worst part. When they know the truth and don't want to admit the truth. Well, then you got your own battle with your own conscience and deal with the truth. So the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And of course, the idea of right hand is the hand of fellowship, it's the hand of authority, it's the hand of blessing. Like where the name Benjamin comes from, the son of my right hand, the Benjamin. All right, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So there is a, uh, a welcome, there is a blessing, and there's a promise of greater blessing. There's the assurance that God the Father is accomplishing a work. He is accomplishing the work on behalf of his son. And when that work is accomplished, he will then bestow that honor upon his son. The son will not take claim to anything until God the Father bestows it upon him. He doesn't even take the seat until God the Father offers it to him. See, the whole principle is that you humble yourself and then he exalts you at the proper time. You don't claim it for yourself. You don't claim that you're entitled to it, whether it's your priesthood or your, or your throne or, or anything. You wait until he assigns it to you. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion and rule in the midst of your enemies. All right? So Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. When Jesus Christ comes to rule, there will be enemies all around. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In, in other words, Israel will finally become volitionally uh, embracing of their king. The same Israel that rejected their king. The same Israel that crucified their king. They are going to come and they're going to come volitionally, freely. They will volunteer freely. In fact, until they're humble to do this, he won't come back at second advent. All right. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, whatever that is, I think Doug asked me that once upon a time. So what is that womb of the dawn? Uh, I'm going to figure it out someday. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn. Let's connect verse 1 with verse 4 and understand this because we want, to, we want to connect these the way that we do, the way the book of Hebrews does. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are. Now this is presently. This is not what you're going to be. This is not in the future. This is not someday when your enemies are a footstool for your feet. It's not someday when your people voluntarily, freely receive you. This is right here, right now. You are a high priest, a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So, God the Father invites Jesus Christ to be seated at his right hand. Understand how pivotal this moment is. Understand, I mean, this, this is the whole, if you, if, you, if you ever try to grasp the, the message of the whole Bible, this is huge. Because it goes back to the rebellion of Satan. It goes back to his fall. It goes back to, what was his fall all about? A, a prideful rebellion about seating assignments, 
<laughs> right? He was not satisfied with where his throne was. He said, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will take my seat on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. That's the right hand, folks. Okay? He's not entitled to that seat. He is not entitled to that seat. In fact, I think the rebuke gets very clear in the book of Hebrews when the author asks rhetorically, to which of the angels did he ever say? <laughs> okay? Satan? Certainly not. None of them. None of them. No angel was entitled to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. The hand of blessing, the hand of equality. When Jesus said, I and the Father are one, this is a co-regency. We understand how co-regencies work? All right. No angel was entitled to be a co-regent, a vice-regent with God the Father. But God the Son is. All right. Particularly God the Son, the obedient one who humbled himself, who accomplished all the God the Father's good pleasure. You bet he's entitled to that seat. All right, so this session, should have capitalized that, is closely identified with his Melchizedek priesthood. You are presently, now, and forever, a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now that's clear, because that tells us a couple of things. It tells us it's not even Jewish. Melchizedek was not Jewish. Melchizedek predated Abraham. Uh, Abraham offered a tithe to Melchizedek, and that becomes significant in the book of Hebrews. Because the Levitical priesthood, which was Israel's priesthood, is less than, the, the, the lesser serves the greater. The Levitical priesthood gave a tithe to the Melchizedek priesthood when, when Abraham blessed Melchizedek. Okay? And the book of Hebrews makes that a very strong and very powerful, significant point. Jesus wasn't qualified to be a Levitical priest. He was the wrong tribe. He was the tribe of Judah. All right? He was entitled to a throne, but not a priesthood. Not as, not as a son of Judah. The priesthood for Israel was a Levitical priesthood, the tribe of Levi. And not even every Levite. It was the, only the, the descendants of Aaron, one clan within the Levites. The non-Aaronic clans that descended from Levi's other sons, Kohath, Kohath and whoever, those non-Aaronic sons were, uh, were not priests. Okay? They were Levites, but not priests. All right. Well, Jesus is a priest, and it's a Melchizedek priesthood. And the Melchizedek priest, after the order of Melchizedek, tells you a number of things. It's, um, that's basically why the whole book of Hebrews was written. <laughs> All right. We'll bring up some Hebrews verses here in a moment. But this is what he's doing in session. What did he do as a priest on earth? When he, in first advent, did he function as a priest? I don't think he did. The only thing I think he did as a priest in the first advent was the cross itself, where he offered up his soul, where he was the priest, where he was the sacrifice, where he was the altar. Everything else he did in first, and was he a king in first advent? He was entitled to it, but he never took the throne, and the father didn't instruct him to sit on the throne. So we say Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, but basically first advent, he simply operated as a, as a prophet, as an Old Testament prophet. Okay? Priesthood waited until the cross, and the king a title is waiting for second advent. He won't be seated as king until he comes back in to conquer at second advent. All right, let's go to Hebrews 1 and understand that no angel is accorded this glory. <clears throat> no angel is accorded this glory. Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> no angel is accorded that glory. As a matter of fact, even God the Son was not accorded this glory until he humbled himself to the point of death. When Jesus says, restore to me the glory I had with you before the world was, the Father said, okay, you're going to get that glory back. Your pre-incarnate glory you're going to have back, but an even greater glory as well. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. So there were a lot of prophets before Jesus. But Jesus is the pinnacle. Jesus is the essence of God the Father. All right? Islam tells you that Muhammad is the pinnacle. Muhammad is the prophet that comes after Jesus. That's the essence of uh, Allah. And Allah doesn't have a, a son. 
because Allah is not a father, according to the Quran. All right. In any event, the pinnacle of the father is the son. And if you've seen the son, you've seen the father. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Heir of all things. We know the firstborn is entitled to the preeminent inheritance, right? Typically, the firstborn was was afforded double honor. And then all other sons after the firstborn had lesser portions because the firstborn was entitled to the double portion, the double honor. All right, well, what happens if the firstborn is the heir of all things? (laughs) What's left over for younger sons if the firstborn is entitled to everything? Nothing, that's right. Good thing, of course, our inheritance is where? In him, that's right. We are fellow heirs, fellow heirs in Christ, fellow heirs with the heir of all things. I love that. that's, That's a whole sermon right there by itself, isn't it? All right. heir of all things, through whom also, oh, by the way, through whom also he made the world. I love the way this verse, I mean, verse 2 is is remarkable, not only for what it says, but for the way that it says it. It's, It's almost as if creation is an afterthought. Oh, and by the way, the God who created the world. So if you, if you're all full of yourself and you think you're, you've done something, really? Are you the one through whom God created everything? the creator of all things, who humbled himself and became a man. Humbled himself and became a man. It's, it's just it's, it's mind-boggling, right? You think of what the kenosis was all about, how the God-man, the, the creator of the universe, humbled himself to become a part of this creation. It's like the song, I thirst. You know, Jesus said, I thirst. And he made the oceans. I thirst, and he made the rivers. I thirst, he made the sea. It's just a testimony to his humility. The God of the universe who created all this, and he said, I thirst. The reason why was so that he could produce living water for you and for me. Okay? If you don't know that song, I recommend you Google it. Find the YouTube on it. It's pretty good. All right. Now, verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory. In other words, if there's a light, a source of light and that light shines forth, okay? So you've got a you've got a, a sun and then the radiance that what what shines forth. You've got a something that produces light and then the shining forth of that light. What is it that reaches you here? The sun doesn't reach you here, but the radiance from the sun reaches you here when the light beams hit you here, the sunlight hits you here. And so God the Father, whom no one has seen or can see at any time, but the radiance of that Father's light, the representation of that glory. What it is, what it is that, that you apprehend is the Son. He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. We, we studied that in Geisler, right? In systematic theology. He created everything. He also upholds everything. That's why the earth doesn't go spinning off into the galaxy somewhere. That's why molecules just don't explode. Okay? Uh, they will explode. There's coming a, a day when every molecule of, of physical matter is going to explode into, into heat and light energy. The only reason it doesn't now is because they're waiting for Jesus Christ to give the command. He upholds all things by the word of his power. So, when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Isn't that great? It's like creation. When God the Father completed all His work on the sixth day and He rested, Jesus Christ learned from the Father. And He accomplished everything the Father had for Him to do. And He took the seat that was offered to Him. He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Having become as much better than the angels. You know, if you think about the angelic dimension, that's where sin entered into the cosmos. The angelic dimension is where rebellion first occurred in the spirit realm. And then through angelic temptation is where sin entered the human realm. And how the uh, invisible realm and the visible realm both reconciled by the blood of of the cross. 
he inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my beloved son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. To which of the angels did he ever say? Okay. Now, there's a whole classification of angels that were called Elohim. A whole classification of angels that were called Beneha Elohim. But even the Beneha Elohim or the Elohim rank of angels, none of them were begotten by the Father. They were all created, not begotten. And as created beings, they don't have the Father's own nature. Like God the Son has the Father's nature. Begotten of the Father. There's only one begotten of the Father. I will be a father and he shall be my son. Okay, so we got quotations here from Psalm 2. All right, and Psalm 2 goes with Psalm 110. These, these are our messianic psalms that speak of the deity of, of Christ, that speak of his um, position as God the Son, that speak of his position as the God-man, his right to the throne and his priesthood. So the point is, no angel is accorded that glory. No angel received the declaration from the Father. Now, if an angel wants to take something for himself without the Father saying so, <laughs> well, that's, isn't that what Satan's rebellion is all about? Okay, And I think, truly, um, the humility necessary to be a son of the Father, to be at the right hand of the Father, I think Satan's too proud for that. He didn't have the humility to apply submission as God the Son does. Because when Satan said, I will be like the Most High God, he's not trying to claim to be a counterfeit Christ. He wants to be a counterfeit Father. He's claiming co-equal status with the Father. In fact, to even usurp and overthrow the Father. And then he'll appoint his own right-hand Son, Antichrist, to sit at his right hand. So to which of the angels did he ever say? And so in verse 6, when he again brings the firstborn into the world. Now, this is second advent. Okay, When he again brings, has to do with Jesus Christ submitting to the will of the Father. Jesus didn't come in first advent because he wanted to. He came in submission to the Father, in the Father's plan, the Father's design. Same thing with second advent. Jesus Christ won't come back at second advent until God the Father says, your enemies are now a footstool for your feet. When he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. It's going to be a prime worshiping opportunity for the angels. Millennium is going to be fun. Millennium is going to have mortal humans that survived the tribulation, having their mortal babies, having generations throughout the thousand-year reign of mortal humanity, as well as resurrected and glorified humanity, as well as visible angels. Can you imagine what this world's going to be like? And the visible angels are going to be serving us, worshiping the Lord. Let all the angels of God worship Him. And of the angels, He says, who makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So who sits on the throne? God sits on the throne. It really, I mean, the Pharisees knew this too. They called him, they, they said he was accused of blasphemy for claiming to be the son of God. But they knew that it was God himself, the son of David, the son of David would be God, sitting on the throne. They knew that. They knew that for a fact. All right. Down to verse 13, again, same chapter. <clears throat> to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? All right, so this is scripture here that is, com that is combining the you are my son from Psalm 2 to sit at my right hand from Psalm 110. All right, that link between sonship and right hand session. Scripture is making that connection for us. To which of the angels did he say? To which of the angels did he say? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That's what they are. The angels are our servants. 
the whole idea that, oh, when we go to heaven, we're going to be angels. No, are you kidding me? What a demotion. Okay? When we get to heaven, we're going to be higher than the angels because we're in Christ. And he's inherited a name that's much higher than the angels. We have a name that's much higher than the angels. It's like people that are all worked up about money, wealth, gold. We get to heaven, what's that? That's pavement. You know? You know, you're all wrapped up worshiping gold and you get to heaven and that's just pavement beneath your feet. Something to be walked on. Angels are ministering spirits and have to render service. No angel is entitled to that seat. All right. I think the uh, <clears throat> the Isaiah 14 passage is it's not in my notes, but we looked at it in angelology. Isaiah 14. Look at the disgruntled aspect on his seating. Isaiah 14, 12 through uh, 14 here. In the fall of Satan. How you have fallen from heaven, O Halel ben Shachar, son of, star of the morning, son of the dawn. This is his title. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, here's his pride and here's his rebellion. This is what launched the angelic warfare. I will ascend to heaven. Now we know from Ezekiel 28 that he was placed on the original earth. He was placed on the angelic earth. He, he was on the holy mountain of God. He was the, the most beautiful, the wisest, the most powerful of all the angelic beings. He's the only angel ever called the Messiah angel. He was the Mashiach Karub, the Messiah cherub, placed on that mountain. But he didn't like where he was placed. I will ascend to heaven. Not satisfied with earth. Not satisfied, viewed it as confining, viewed it as lower, viewed it as in, inferior. Well, how come those seraphim, they get to be up in heaven? And Satan is not. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. So he has a throne. Notice that? My throne. He has a throne. He's simply not content with its placement. It's below the stars of heaven, and Satan feels that's not right. He's more beautiful than them. He's wiser than them. Why would he be below them? I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. There's a position that he lusts after. The assembly, obviously, we have the divine council. We have the Elohim and the Beneha Elohim. Now, I think I'm correct on this. It takes a bit of work to orient north to right hand. But I think, that, I think that's correct. I do think that north is right hand. And I think depending on, there's different Hebrew vocabulary for north versus south. Um, you've got ideas on east versus west and what is front and what is back. Okay, And we're told uh, east, the mountain east of Jerusalem is the mountain in front of Jerusalem. Okay? And we're told, we looked at that when we saw the ascension of Jesus Christ um, and the return of Jesus Christ in Zechariah 14. When the glory of God departed the temple, it departed to the east. What direction does the tabernacle face? What direction does the temple face? When you're at the front of the tabernacle, you're entering into the holy place, you're entering into the most holy place. All right. When the glory departed the temple, it was headed east. And it stood at the holy place it stood at the threshold. It stood at the gate of the city, the eastern gate. Okay? The one that the Muslims bricked up when they conquered Jerusalem. <laughs> okay? They brick it up and they plant a cemetery out front like that's going to stop Jesus Christ when he comes back. Okay? Because he's going to land on the Mount of Olives and he's going to march through that eastern gate. All right. Anyway, the description is, is to the east and it says in front of in front of Jerusalem. There's more studies on that too. I find it remarkable when uh, Cain was expelled and went to the east. The land of Nod was in the east. Why was he going east? And some other things. And, you know, which, where was the gate that the cherub was posted to keep people out? Kind of a thing. Anyway, um, 
I do think it's correct to equate the recesses of the north with the right hand. All right? And so when God the Father says, sit at my right hand, that this is what Satan was lusted after. And when he says, to which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand, we would say, to which of the angels did he say, take your seat in the recesses of the north. Take the seat that Satan was lusting after on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And as if reigning over the divine council wasn't high enough, he wanted the place of Yahweh himself. Like the most high. There can only be one most high. We get that, right? The highest. The highest is superlative. Superlative is singular. If, uh, if, if there's somebody higher, then, then you're not most high. Okay? There can only be one most high. There's only one I am. Only one self-existent, uncreated God of the universe. All these other gods, they're called gods, they're called Elohim, but they are created beings, and they are subject to the uncreated. They are contingent beings. They had a beginning. They had a beginning, all right? Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28. <clears throat> Verse 12. Son of man. And I love the fact that Ezekiel is called son of man. He's a type of Christ when he pronounces this rebuke. Take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You are the sealer of perfection. You are. And we took this as a title too, like Halel ben Shachar. We took this as a title, Chotheim Takanith, the sealer of perfection. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. This wasn't Adam and Eve's Eden. This was the angelic Eden. Every precious stone was your covering. This is not a zoological animal here. Zoological animals and birds and fish that have feathers or scales or fur. There's not a zoological creature that has the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper. Has there ever been an animal with gems like this? Okay, no. But the dragon did. The dragon had uh, all of these gems. The lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald. And these gems match the ephod of the high priest of Israel. He was the Levi, the Levitical dragon. That's what Leviathan is. Levi Tanin. All right. Notice though, on the day that you were created. Boom. Okay? We have birthdays. He has creation day right humans are all born i mean this is easy enough the youngest of children here knows this you have a mom you were born satan wasn't born he was created and so we have birthdays we celebrate even though mom did all the work angels don't have birthdays they have creation days and a finite creation day and what i think is remarkable is that none of us remembers our birthday okay but a created angel remembers their created day okay i'm convinced of that so from the day you were created here i am and i'm created they were prepared you were the messiah cherub who covers and i placed you there Here's the thing, the, cre- the creature has to come face to face with his creator where he's placed, what, with what he's been created, with what has been prepared, right? We are created in Christ Jesus with good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. Likewise, all of these angels were created and their works were prepared that they should walk in them. I placed you there. You were in the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You are blameless in your ways from the day you were created. 
until unrighteousness was found in you. So here's another picture of the fall of Satan. That he was blameless from, the, from creation until his mental attitude sin caused unrighteousness to come into existence. So, creation day, creation day, creation day. Here is a creature, a finite being with a beginning. A finite creature with a beginning. And he looks in the eyes of God the Father and says, I will be like the Most High God. I will be like the one without beginning. Now, if you are a creature with a beginning, it's too late to be a being without beginning. You already are. (laughs) Everything you are is what you became because somebody else caused it to be. Every I am statement we have as finite beings can be restated with an I became. Okay? Everything. I am pastor of Austin Bible Church. But that's not an eternal, self-existent, eternal I am because I became pastor of Austin Bible Church in November of 1995. All right? I am... Sharon's husband, but I became Sharon's husband in 1991. Okay? I am. Everything, you can do the same thing. Everything you can say, I am, rephrase it with I became. And it had a beginning. All right? Satan had a beginning. But he vows that I will be like the Most High God, the one without a beginning. Well, it's too late. You are a creature, you are a created thing. You cannot become what is self-existent. God didn't become God. God is God. Always is God. Always was, always is, always will be. In fact, past, present, future doesn't apply to God. God is. I am. So how does he believe he can become self-existent? I am? It's part of his insanity. See, he's not stupid. But he's... He's uh, deceptive. And he doesn't believe it. I don't think he believes God's self-existent. I think he just accepts that God was here before he was. And that God's the same kind of liar he is. And then all he has to do is throw him down and take his place. Because he's positive that that's what God did. Whoever was before God, God threw him down, took his place. So now he's going to throw God down and take his place. Why does he believe that's what God did? Yeah. Well, because that's what he would do. Yeah. You always think that they're thinking like you think. They'll do, they, they did what you would do. I mean, really? You've always been? I don't believe that. Satan doesn't believe that. All right. Part of that satanic thinking. So, that's why when you, when you observe the arrogance of Satan and the humility of Jesus Christ, you have the, the plan of God reader right there. Okay? Jesus humbled himself. And the thing was, he came from the, you've got the realm of God, the realm of angels, the realm of man. And here's Satan in the realm of angels trying to ascend to the realm of God. And here's God who comes down, who empties himself who humbles himself. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't just humble himself to the level of an angel. He's made for a little while lower than the angels. He's found in the likeness of man. And so he becomes even to a lower level than Satan ever had and obeys the Father even to the point of death on the cross. For this reason, he is highly exalted. Above the angels, above anything Satan ever dreamed of. All right. The session of Jesus Christ. Let's go to Matthew 26. <clears throat> Jesus referenced the session when he asserted his deity. Matthew 26. The session of Jesus Christ being seated at the Father's right hand. He mentions being seated. You know, it was for the joy set before him. The joy, I think, was being seated at the Father's right hand. Jesus referenced the session as well as the second coming. 
But he references the session when he asserted his deity. Matthew 26. This is during his trial. Matthew 26, 64. And we studied this. We studied all six of his trials. We studied every accusation. We demonstrated why it was that he stayed silent through most of it. But when it was that he was not permitted to stay silent, he stayed silent, I believe, in obedience to the Father, that he was, uh, his silence was the picture of the silent lamb that went humbly as, uh, as the sheep before his shearers was silent, that the, the, he was the faithful lamb of God that allowed himself to be crucified. But on the occasions where he could not stay silent, why? Why was it that he was not permitted to stay silent? Do you remember? Standing before the high priest. <clears throat> and uh, he stays silent, and he stays silent, and he stays silent. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? This is uh, Matthew twenty six sixty two. What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, notice now, I adjure you. He's going to invoke the name of the living God. And he adjures him. This is significant. I adjure you by the living God. He invokes the name of the living God. You tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. With that adjuration, invoking the name of the living God, Jesus can no longer remain silent. He's compelled to speak. And he will do so. The God of truth cannot deny the truth. So Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. He agrees. He testifies. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God, the Son of the living God. Nevertheless, and then what does he say? Here I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Wow. The session of Jesus Christ. The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. You've got the Son of Man who comes up and presents Himself before the Ancient of Days. Daniel prophesied of this in Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man uh, uh, being presented before the Ancient of Days. Being ruled in favor. Seated at His right hand. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And coming on the clouds of heaven. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Isn't that great? And the high priest, who should have torn his robes in humility and fear the Lord and fallen and worshipped God in the flesh, instead pronounces guilt. He has blasphemed. Now, any man that declares to be God is blasphemy. Unless he's God. (laughs) Okay? Jesus is the only man who can claim to be God because he is God. If you and I could declare ourselves to be God, we're not God. It's blasphemy to to declare deity unless you're God. But he fulfills prophecy. He points out from the Scripture what what must happen. And uh, there it is. Luke 22, 69, I think, is a parallel text. I don't know that it's that different. Luke 22, 69... and uh, the council of elders the people yep same trial both the chief priests and scribes led him away to the council chamber saying if you are the christ tell us but he said to them if i tell you you will not believe and if i ask a question you will not answer but from now on the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of god And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? We have a testimony. We have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. (laughs) Respond to the test. What did he say? I will tell you the truth and you will not believe me. He uttered a prophecy. The prophecy was fulfilled 30 seconds later. (laughs) Okay? And they don't believe him. They call him a blasphemer and they put him to death. Three times they pronounced his guilt. Three times Pontius Pilate pronounced his innocence. All right? Amazing uh, 
symmetry there in the trials of Jesus Christ. But seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's what he was looking forward to. It was the joy set before him to be seated at the Father's right hand. All right, what we're going to come back to next week to study is that the session of Jesus Christ provides for the session of the church. Whoops. Okay. I forgot about D, and then we get to E. All right. So Jesus is seated. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. One exception to him being seated, seated is when he stands up. Why does he stand up? He's supposed to be seated. The Father says, take your seat until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You're not allowed to stand up until I make your enemies a footstool. Okay? But he does take his stand and then sits right back down again at the martyrdom of Stephen. And I think it is a... Uh, it doesn't violate his session when he takes a stand, like in Acts chapter 7. He's still in session, and he does retake his seat. He's not leaving his seat, all right, any more than when he walks in the midst of the golden lampstands, when he holds the stars in his right hand. He's still in session, seated at the right hand of God the Father. You and I are in session at the right hand of Jesus Christ. So we have to embrace the fact that the metaphor um, has different ways to think about it. Okay? So there's the, the, the seated, there's the standing, there's the walking. He's still in session as the head of the church. He's still the apostle and high priest of our confession, even if he takes his stand at the death of a martyr, even if he walks in the midst of the lampstands okay and some of the metaphors maybe we might uh, puzzle over when stephen is put to death and they uh, pick up stones and begin gnashing their teeth at him he says you guys put to death the christ Verse 51 of Stephen's speech here. I love his conclusion. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Yeah, you're physically circumcised. You're racially Jewish. But you're uncircumcised spiritually in heart and ears. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Okay? I love that verse. In fact, I usually talk, I I like to turn here with uh, Calvinists, folks that that hold to an irresistible grace well here's a resistible holy spirit you're always resisting the holy spirit you are doing just as your fathers did which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute can you find one that weren't persecuted they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one every one of the the announcers the the foretellers the prophets you put them to death and then he shows up and you put them to death They announced the coming of the righteous one and they killed them all. You killed the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels yet did not keep it. And when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him. They're actually engaged in hell activity. It's the lake of fire where there's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's what they're doing even now. They're actually living in their own hell on earth. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So as an exception to the general rule where Jesus Christ is normally seated, he does take his stand on occasion, at least on this occasion. And I would believe if precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, that it becomes a pattern that at any time that a child of God is ushered into glory, that Jesus Christ will take his stand and Jesus Christ will stand and welcome him into uh, glory. I think that's just my theory, my, my consideration that uh, this was the moment when Stephen was caught into glory, said, uh, receive my spirit, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And having said this, he fell asleep. So uh, Jesus takes his stand when the royal family of God is called home. Some teach, well, only in a martyrdom circumstance. I think it's, it's the homecoming of every church-age saint that Jesus takes his stand and welcomes him into 
welcomes them into glory. Well, we'll come back next week and we'll see the session of the church. Christ is seated, we're seated. And we need to understand our session as well as his session. So we'll pick up on that next week. Hopefully next week we'll do E, F, G, H, and I. And uh, wrap this up. That's how close we are to the end of life of Christ. Ten years and four months later. All right, Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for what you provide. Thank you for our Savior seated at your right hand, interceding on our behalf. And I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.